You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Defining Rejection, Philip Edwards will define what rejection is and expose Satan's strategy in seeking to rob the church of the glorious freedom it has in Christ. We hope you enjoy today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can listen to past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome again to uh, Arise Academy and we are pleased to present a new module this evening. We're going to be looking at the subject of uh, rejection. Before we start, let's just have a word of prayer as we normally do. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you desire to teach us, uh, to speak into our hearts, to reveal truth to us, to enable us to grow up in you. And Father, we just ask this evening as you uh, join with us here that you will uh, minister into our hearts by your Holy Spirit and uh, you'll make my uh, conversation clear and uh, everyone who is receiving, whether actually in the room or uh, watching a screen, Lord, that you will bless them through this ministry. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to kick off this evening by understanding rejection. If you have the notes, I've got a bit of a long introductory, so I'll tell you when we're actually in the notes. And uh, but, yeah, I just wanted to say one or two things before we turn to them. Ask the question first, why is this subject so important? Well, it's vital. It's more than important, it's really vital, because love is at the very heart of this Christian life of ours. Without it, it doesn't exist. If you took love out of Christianity, Christianity, just imagine for a minute, it wouldn't exist. It doesn't, it can't. The motivation for everything we do should flow from a heart of love. Often we sometimes should stop and say, what's my motivation for doing this? Am I doing this because I feel I have to? Am I doing this because it's my duty? Am I doing it because... I want people to think good of me, or am I doing it from a motivation of love? Love needs to be the motivator. I would say the greatest uh, act of love in the history of humanity, really, was, of course, Jesus going to the cross, dying for everybody in the world, prepared to take upon himself the sin of everyone so that they wouldn't suffer the consequences of their sin, by far the greatest act of love. The scripture tells us it was because of God's love for us that he sent Jesus into the world. As Christians, uh, if we've read our Bible somewhat or listened to sermons, uh, the, the verses about love, they stick to us, they stick with us, and they roll quite easily off our tongue. I could have found dozens and dozens. I just found a few, and of course, when I say them, you'll say, yep, I know that one, I know that one, I know that one, because it's, it's really central to everything. We know, we know that God is love. We know that for God so loved the world that he gave his son, 
He said, by this will all men know that you are disciples of Christ by the way that you love one another. Paul said, if we're going to exercise the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I'll tell you the best way to do it. And it's through the uh, uh, way of loving. You do it because you love. You don't do it because you, you want to be important or think you're special or can exercise the gifts, but you must do it through a motivation of love. We know that we are saved when we love our Christian brothers and sisters. If we don't love them, there's a question mark over the fact, we, are we saved at all? So uh, for some weird reason, and we meet some funny Christians, don't we, in our lives, we're thinking, but I do love them, I love them. God puts his love in our hearts. We know that perfect love drives out fear. We know that everyone who loves is born of God. It says if we don't love, then we don't really know God. We love because he first loved us. It says he pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And greater love hath no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. So many of them. I'm sure you think, yeah, I remember all of them, Phil. I just, just know them. Man is made in the image of God. And God is love. Made in the image. What does that mean? It means that we reflect him. So when people meet us, they should meet something of God. And the more we grow up in Christ, the more of God is obvious in us. A person's love, a person's kindness, a person's smile, a person's desire uh, to, to, to be your friend, to, to support you, to love you. That's what it means to, to be the image of God, to be seen, for God to be seen in us. Satan... Sorry, he always pops up, doesn't he? We're onto this great topic of love and he's popped up again. But he's the enemy of our soul. You know, he knows all these verses too. He probably knows more verses than you do, actually. But he definitely knows these ones. And it says that he comes to kill, to steal and to destroy. What does he come to kill, steal and destroy? Love, of course. If he can destroy love, then he can destroy so much of what God is wanting to do in and through you. If he can destroy our ability to give and to receive love, some people, they're very good at giving things, but they're not very good at receiving. We have to be givers and receivers of this love. If he can destroy our ability to give and receive love, he can undermine the work of God in the world. Well, that's just an obvious statement. If he can starve the church of love, stop it from showing love, then the very image of God is ruined. And, of course, the world looks at the church and expects, what does it expect from us? It expects this love. They have the right to look at us and say, where is this love? Where is this mercy? Where is this compassion? We want to see it, and of course we must reflect it. It must be seen in us. I've ministered to many, many people over the years, well, 40 years in pastoral ministry, you will come up against lots of people, and um, the churches that I pastored, uh, we were 
open all the time to minister into people's lives, to talk to them, to sit with them. And time and time again, what I found was one of the great strategies of Satan was to wound people in this area of being able to love. And of course, the wounds were the wounds of rejection. Uh, ministering to people. I would always sort of move on to this area when talking to them and just let them talk and you would discover hurts that went back a long, long way, often back into their childhood, uh, you know, their adolescence years. And so they had grown up through their lives with these wounds that stopped them, hindered them from moving on in God, growing the way that God intended. Through this, Satan kills two birds with one stone. I thought that really was a fitting way of describing it. Two birds. He kills two lovebirds with one stone, as it were. He kills, through the wounds of rejection, the ability to receive love from people. It's essential that we receive love just in the natural to grow up properly. We need to be loved. Spiritually, to grow up healthily and strong, we need to receive love. The love from others, but also, of course, the love of God. Now, if, if we're wounded, we can't receive God's love either. And God wants to love us and express that love to us. So the first wound is that we are not able to receive love. The second wound is because we can't receive it, we can't give it. Scripture says we are able to love with the love of God because he first loved us. So he wants to love us, but if we can't receive it, there's, we can't take it in and we can't give it out to people. So the devil is, he understands the importance of this, understands if he can wound people in these areas and wound them as early in their lives as they possibly can be, probably in childhood, he will cause them to be disfigured Christians or crippled, as it were, not being able to, to receive and give out love. Jesus said this in John 7 and 38, remember, as he stood on the steps at the great feast, he said this, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. The idea that ministry, and he was referring to the, the Holy Spirit coming in and filling us, because these streams had to flow from a heart full of love. You see, if you have the Holy Spirit, and it's easy to receive the Spirit, but if there's not a heart of love, as Paul was teaching us in Corinthians, we can't minister the things of the Spirit properly. We can't touch people's lives if we are crippled in this area as well, if we're wounded, as it were. So for ministry to flow from us to others, we need to be free to be able to receive God's love. What I want to do over the next four weeks is to expose Satan's lies and deception. He can't do much to us, but what he can do, he can lie and deceive us. And so we're surrounded with these, and because we, once we take the, the lies on board, it binds us up. So what the ministry of God's word does is expose lies 
And then, of course, we lay hold of the truth. And, of course, Scripture says the truth, as you lay hold of it, believe it, receive it, it sets you free. I want you to, to be free of any problems with rejection so you can step out into what Paul calls the glorious liberty of the gospel, the glorious freedom we have in Christ, free to love, free to take on the very nature and character of Christ, to grow in that and to allow it to flow out of our lives. Right, I'm in your notes now. That was my intro. Okay. <laughs> I'll ask the question. I started in the notes. What is, what is rejection? Often it's good, you know, to have a definition of what it is you're talking about so we're clear, so we can always come back to the definition. It is. Rejection is the inability to give or to receive love. It is often linked back to childhood and probably to parents who have the same problem. It's, it seems a bit, a bit hard on parents, but, but most parents want to love their children, but because they have not been loved as they should have been loved, or they were lacking in some way, or they themselves were wounded, as I've been explaining, they couldn't give the love. They did, they did what they could, but it, it wasn't what God originally planned. Rejection then, regarding the parents, doesn't mean that they, they, they didn't love them. It's just that they weren't able to love as they were meant to love. Some important ingredients were missing in the home. Affection. I thought, I better look this word up, affection. We can say it. What is affection? It's a, a gentle feeling of fondness and being liked. You'll see as we go through this, this thing about rejection is all about feelings. Now, feelings are vital, they're important, so we mustn't ignore them. But this idea of when you're growing up as a child in the home, you feel that you're loved. People are gentle with you. They say affectionate things to you as a child, and you have this sense, this knowledge of being loved. Touch is another thing. Some parents just don't touch their children uh, to, to cuddle them or to kiss them or to, to hold them or to reassure them, just to take their hand or whatever it is. Touch, touch is vital to us. Um, I've looked into a study of where Jesus, it says, he touched, he touched, he reached out his hands and he touched. He does it all the time. It, does, it repeats it so many times you're thinking, oh, I've missed this. I miss this. Remember the man that came to him that was leprous and he said, if you're willing, Lord, uh, will you heal me? <laughs> because he says, well, of course I'm willing. And then it says he touched him. He touched him. Well, that leper, that's what he hadn't experienced for years, was it? Someone's touch. He just, he was desperate for someone to touch him. Maybe he hadn't touched his children, his wife, and they'd never touched him. You had to ring the bell and say, unclean, unclean, no one come near me. And it says, Jesus touched him. Almost before he healed him, he touched him. Touch is vital. It's important. 
an affirmation. Uh, if you starve someone of affirmation, and in some people whose love language is affirmation, I don't know if we talk about love languages, but there are certain languages that need to be ministered to us, and some people just thrive on affirmation. If, if you speak positively to them and you, you praise them for what they've done, they'll just, they'll just feel like they're so powerful they can do anything. Well, some parents don't do that. They just don't speak positively at all. And that, that child can be almost crippled uh, through not receiving affirmation. This thing called rejection, uh, it's never invited. It just happens. And it happens to everybody. It does. Now, some people are more sensitive to it than others because some people have been wounded. Other people haven't, or they seem to have a, a thicker skin to, to resist it. Whatever it is, I'm not absolutely sure, but it just happens. It happens all the time. It happens when we're tiny. It happens uh, in adolescent years. It happens as young adults. It happens all the time to us because people are selfish around us and, and, and people don't care as much as they should. And so they simply minister this rejection. I was thinking when I was thinking about this, how, uh, remember the story of Cain and Abel, and we're going to get onto that a bit later uh, in this course. But it said of Cain, uh, it said, Cain, why are you so angry? Well, he was angry because God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected his offering. And so in rejecting Cain's offering, he rejected Cain. In, in accepting Abel's offering, he accepted Abel. We'll look at this in a little more detail. He said, why are you so angry looking? Don't you know that sin is crouching at the door and it desires to have you? And as I thought of that, I thought, this is what rejection does. It crouches at the door, as it were, and it desires to have us. It desires to wound us. It desires to bind us up. It crouches at the door. I think this was a quote from Derek Prince. He said this, Rejection is the greatest undiagnosed, therefore untreated illness in the body of Christ. Uh, now, I respect his ministry a lot, and I know he has ministered to lots of people in the area of deliverance and so forth. So when he makes a statement like that, I, I listen carefully. But then as I read other books, uh, this analysis was true with lots of other people who have ministered in the area of deliverance and so forth, that time and time again they have come up with people who are wounded with the wounds of rejection. How do people feel rejected? Let's have a look at this, this feeling thing. Mm. Matters of the heart, okay, uh, they're often impossible to explain. If I said to you, I want you to explain love to me, uh, you would get different things from different people and what makes them feel loved would be different from another. And if I said to you, what does it mean to love someone? You go, oh, there'd be this and that. And then you would say different things to me as well. So they're matters of the heart. You say, well, I just know what it is. I know when I'm loved and I know when I'm loving because it's, a, it's an emotion. It's a feeling that flows from my heart. And lots of our life 
is about feelings, really. There's a sort of an attitude in the church, well, oh, don't listen to your feelings. Uh, it's your will that's important. Well, I agree, in principle, it is your will that is the final thing. But you can't ignore your feelings. Feelings play a part. God, God put them in you, created them, so everything he made was good. So we need to listen to them. They needn't dictate our very actions, our life. But we need to listen to them. Love, anger, grief, hurt, compassion, feelings, you see, all of them, uh, affairs of the heart. So if you were saying to someone who is suffering from rejection, they feel unloved. <laughs> what, what do you mean? They feel unwanted. They feel worthless. They feel valueless. They feel inadequate. They feel inferior. They feel insecure. You see, it's all about feelings and they're extremely strong in a person who is wounded by rejection. They think that everyone is better than them. Everyone can do things better than them. So why would they even try to do something when they can't do it well and everyone would do it better than them. They don't feel secure in who they are and they have no identity and role then in life because they're unimportant. It doesn't even matter if they're here or not here. They're the same as the wallpaper. It's just that's their feelings, that's what they believe. Often this can lead to self-rejection. Being rejected and then terrible when we reject ourselves. You begin the process of speaking negatively about yourself. Oh, I'm no good. Uh, I just can't do this. Uh, just... I remember a little story uh, that maybe just captures this. There was a mother who had two daughters. One was her favourite and she really loved her and the other one wasn't. And she knew this and she, she felt it as well. One day the mother came home and she opened the door and she could hear one of her daughters was in the other room. And she called out, she said, is that you darling? And the daughter with the rejection was the one in the room. She said, no, it's me. You understand? You understand? So you think, whoa, okay. That, that was what she felt about herself. She could see that this one was loved and cherished and wanted, yet in herself, she wasn't worth anything. She didn't even see herself really as her mother's daughter, which is a terrible terrible thing. This, this self-negative speaking thing can lead to very destructive thoughts. And we know what people do when they have these destructive thoughts that are about themselves. They might self-harm or they might even go as far as attempting suicide uh, because there is no point to life. Uh, they just they crave to be loved, you see, to be wanted, to 
to feel secure, to be cherished, to be valuable, all of those things. And they don't. They don't feel it at all. Rejection, it then affects our relationships that we have with others. People who feel, suffer from the wounds of rejection, they're very suspicious of when someone might show them love. See, they don't believe it. They don't recognise it. And what they tend to do is to push it away because they don't feel safe with it. They don't perhaps believe it's genuine. They don't know how to receive this thing. They actually, as I said, recoil and push away and even do things to cause the person who's trying to love them to reject them. And when they do, they feel comfortable with that. You think, this is crazy. Is this true? Oh yes, it's true. People who suffer from rejection are very good at rejecting you when you seek to minister or go towards them in love. They do things that isolate them and cause them to push back into this place of being unloved. Maybe in their subconscious they fear that this person who is showing them love might reject them and then that would be even ten times worse. So they, they push it away. So they protect themselves by not going there in the first place or they can become rebellious and push it away and be quite angry in that situation. Some are so wounded over the years they cannot even recognise love when it's given to them. I remember meeting uh, with a guy and he suffered really seriously with rejection. And uh, I remember meeting him in his home, in coffee shops. He would sometimes come to my study, uh, would sit with him. Uh, well, it wasn't hours at a sitting, but over the years it was hours and hours. And I would give him a good amount of time and I wouldn't rush and I would listen to everything he had to say. And he did moan quite a lot. And so that's quite exhausting when you listen to people moaning all the time. Anyway, but, but he suffered from rejection. And so I, I spent all this time with him and I said to him one day, don't you realise when people are loving you? He said, what do you mean? I said, what do you interpret what I'm doing now? I'm sitting with you, I'm listening to you, I've sat with you for hours, we've shared cups of coffee. I've, I've... He didn't see it as love, you see. He didn't see it. And so some of us, we're not very good at recognising when people are loving us. If someone gives you a lift in their car, buys you a cup of coffee, does something for you, whatever, we need to sharpen up on saying what this person is doing, he is or she is loving me. And we need to be able to receive this love and appreciate what it is. See, we need to be loved. So when people are doing it, um, we need to be really sensitive to when love is coming. Otherwise we go around thinking, no one loves me, no one cares anything about me, and people are loving, they are caring, but you're not appreciating what's going on. How can a person who feels rejected ever accept the unconditional love of God? Well, the truth is, they don't. 
They can't. Just as they can't receive love from one another, although God is loving them, he can't love them anymore. He sent Jesus to die for them. He can't do anymore. They, they can't receive it, which puts them in an almost impossible position as a Christian. These words of rejection then must be treated. I found um, with rejected people also, um, the slightest uh, wrong glance or wrong word, and they, they see it straight away as though they're looking for it. You know, maybe uh, you look at your watch and it's like, oh, you don't care about me. It's like, you don't want to spend time with me. You know? So I'm very conscious, you know, uh, if, if I'm ever counselling with people, I sit and the clock is over there, okay? So uh, I, don't, I don't have to do any of this or turn around to see what the time is. So, uh, and this is the point. We need to be sensitive with people. We need to appreciate people do suffer the wounds of rejection. And so the way we conduct ourselves, if we really want to love people, we conduct ourselves in a way that is most loving. When someone's talking to you, you look at them, you pay attention to them. You don't fidget and things because any slight movement, that person will go, you're not interested in me, you don't care about me, you don't love me. Nothing to do with the fact they've been talking to you for three quarters of an hour and you haven't got a word in edgeways. Or, or you know, the fact that actually you said you'd see them for half an hour and it's shot past that time. They don't get that. They just get the odd things that says to them, you don't love me, you don't love me. It's waiting there to, as, as it were, jump on it. They also have barriers of defence that will not let you that close to them. And so, why? Because they don't want to be hurt. So they keep a distance from you all the time. Some people can't give love because they've never received any love. They don't understand what love is. You can't receive what you don't recognise and you can't give what you don't possess. How is the church, the church meant to help? Because we all can help. When we're loved, we are approved and accepted. And because God accepted me in the terrible state I was when I came to him, that's how we should be in the church. We should be accepting of people. You say, oh, you've got to be careful until you know what people are like. No, let's just accept them and let's find out what they're like and let's, through grace and ministry and love and care, try to move them on to a better place. Not be defensive all the time or make people prove themselves to us, but let's be what God is to us, accepting. People want to be approved of and accepted. When we disapprove of people, when we refuse, we're just making it worse for them. The church is a place for all. It's not just for a, a place for people like you or people like me. It's a place for everyone. 
all different sorts of people with different ideas and different ways of worshipping God and different ways of thinking and different maturity, just so vastly different. And so we have to accept all the walking. You know, you could say, well, the vision for this church is to just minister to this group of people. Well, okay, but you're not going to get them. You're going to get all sorts of people. And so if you just say, oh, no, we just want to minister to these, what are you saying to all the other people? You have to be very careful. It's like, no, you're all welcome to come and we will try and minister. You don't have to say these things. We will try and minister to all of you, whatever your need is, whatever you have, whatever giftings you bring, we'll try and release that. We'll try and get behind it and support it. So you're all welcome in this place. It must be broad in its appeal and acceptance of all. In the church there must be no cliques, no little groups. And if you see one and you're in it, you must leave it. You mustn't be part of it because it destroys the very body of Christ. You've got to break it up. If there is an inner circle, you make sure you're not in it. Get out of it as quick as you can because what we have is a circle and people are being nasty, pushing themselves into the circle. And when you get there, it's not what they thought it is. And it's, we need to break down these circles, break down these cliques. And if, if you find yourself being part of it, we need to speak up sometimes and say, this is unacceptable. Groups within groups is not a good thing. I remember when I was uh, coming into pastoral ministry, I was given, um, I can remember these two pieces of advice in relationship to rejection. One elderly minister, he took me to one side and he says, I'm going to give you a bit of advice. I mean, I was probably about 30 at the time, and of course, I want to learn. I mean, if someone's been doing this for 40 years, I want to know what they've got to say. He says, the advice I give you is I want you to keep your distance from people. I thought, oh, okay, carry on. <laughs> what do I know? Uh, but I didn't think this sounded right. He said, only let people call you Pastor or Mr. Edwards. I thought, Mr. Edwards, Pastor? I don't like titles for a start. I thought, this is really weird. Anyway, I didn't, I didn't, I, I obviously put it in my back pocket because I can remember it 40 years later. Then I, know, I, I was speaking to another man and he said, he never said it in such a bombastic way, like I'm going to give you a bit of advice. It just came across as a loving fatherly thing. And he said, do you know, he said, I would say that you need to treat everyone as though they have a spirit of rejection. Everyone who comes into this church, look upon them as though they're wounded and hurt by rejection. And he says, if you do that, you will only love them and accept them and make them feel secure and wanted. I knew which bit of advice I wanted for a start, okay, because it was just so obvious to me. Well, that's brought us nearly to the end of our first talk on this, but I'm going to throw some things at you now. I suppose uh, before I do this, I wanted to say, if there are any of you uh, 
who are present uh, in the school who would want to share a testimony about rejection and how God has ministered to you because there's a real live thing to happen. Uh, I'm going to give you space to do that maybe at the end of the talk, so be ready. I mean, we can do it last thing if there's time today or uh, come in future weeks. And those who are on, uh, online or it's being streamed to you, um, if you want to send in some testimonies, we will read them out uh, here uh, at the school. Uh, because it's sometimes good to uh, give testimony to what God has done, just to reinforce what you're thinking, to encourage others. Testimony is a wonderful thing. So I've got a couple of questions here regarding uh, what I've called self-examination. How do you respond when you look in the mirror or at photographs of yourself? Now, I've been to some homes and there seems to be a mirror on every wall. And I've been in other homes and I thought, hmm, there's no mirrors here. It's as though it's a, a choice. Uh, and I, I, I would often like to think, why are there so many mirrors or, or why are there no mirrors in this house? Uh, and do you like looking at photos of yourself? Um, you know, uh, you go, oh, I don't like that one, don't like that one, don't, and you're like, oh, there's one, I like that one, you know. So, um, well, they're all of you, and um, I know there's your good side and your bad side, but generally, you know, if it's more than just, mm, you know, a surface thing, but it goes deep, uh, consider that. Consider that. Do you feel good when you look at photos of yourself or when you look into the mirror? The uh, second examinating question is, are you necessary to what God is doing? Are you necessary to what he's doing? Do you count? Are you needed? Is there a sense of self-worth and personal value? See, there's only one of you, and God has chosen you. And we all have giftings, and he has prepared things in advance for us to do. So it's a lie to think, oh, I'm irrelevant. I just go along at church, I sit there, I get up and go home. It's like, this is all I do. It's like, I have no ministry, I don't do anything. I, there's something wrong there. Okay, is, is that because of you? Are you necessary then to what God is doing? The third uh, Examinatory question, are you really loved? Do you feel really loved? Do people really love you? You think, well, how do I know? How do you feel, you see? It's how do you feel? If you feel really loved, then you feel really loved. If you don't, even though you might be really loved, that's what's important. So do you feel really loved? Do you feel really loved? Is there a healthy sense of belonging? Wherever you are, which, whatever group of people, do you feel you belong? Or are you just on the outside always, not quite in there? Now, I've already said I don't like circles, so we all need to be in in whatever it is we're into. 
a healthy sense of belonging? Is there an awareness of being wanted, accepted, cared for, enjoyed and loved? We should, we should experience that this is how people feel about me. They accept me, they care for me, they want me. Do you feel you have the ability to get through life or is just life all a bit too much for you? It's just uphill all the way. Can you cope with situations? Are you able to meet life? Do you feel competent or is life just overwhelming day after day after day? And the last question I have here is, can you release what you have of God for his kingdom? See, God is pouring things into us all the time. It must flow out of us. We must touch other people's lives. If it doesn't flow in and out, it stops flowing in. You can't, you see, God doesn't do that. He wants it to flow, sorry, flow through you so you're touching other people's lives. If his love is poured into your heart, it needs to pour out. If his grace is pouring in, it needs to pour out and touch other people. Or are you locked up in yourself? Are you a channel for God? Or are you locked up? Just one or two things to ponder there. We'll have our break now and come back shortly. Thank you. Welcome back. We're going to look at why rejection is such a problem. I want to take you to a, a Bible passage uh, that deals with David and Mephibosheth. Now, um, as a young man that stammered when he was young, there are certain words that are a bit tricky to say, really. So um, I've got over that one first. So uh, I won't say it too many times. I won't risk it. So, uh, but yeah, we're going to read that story together. Um, he's just one of the characters in Scripture that is a classic example of someone who was rejected. And so we want to uh, deal with him this evening. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to 2 Samuel. First, we're going to go to chapter 4 and read verse 4. And then we're going to go on to chapter 9 and read just 13 verses there. So first, 2 Samuel in chapter 4. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Well done, Philip. Okay, so let's go to chapter 9 now of that same book. 2 Samuel and chapter 9. From verse 1, we're going to read down to verse 13. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both feet. 
Where is he? The king asked. Zibra answered, He is at the house of uh, Micah, the son of Emiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Micah, the son of Emiel. When Methibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Methibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that, lo- that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Bethibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you would notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant. He said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Methibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever the Lord the king commands his servant to do. So Bethibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's son. Bethibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants to Bethibosheth. <laughs> it's so many times, and it's, un- it's, un- it's not fair, is it, really? <laughs> I mean, dear me, it only says David twice and this other name 15 times. And Methibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. It doesn't really need a lot of uh, explanation. Uh, Methibosheth was the grandson, well, he was the son of Jonathan and the grandson of Saul, uh, obviously, uh, when uh, his father and his grandfather were killed in war. In fact, they, uh, Saul fell on his own sword, didn't he, and killed himself. Jonathan was killed in war. And of course, what would happen usually, and it even happened in history more recent than that, once a king falls, then every other line to the throne gets killed. So the one who is taking the throne doesn't have to worry about people wanting to bring back the, the, the rightful heir to the throne. So uh, once the nurse hears that uh, Saul and Jonathan are, are dead, she goes to pick the child and rush to hide the child. She's caring for the child and she drops the child. The child is crippled in both feet and uh, she goes into hiding. Um, the boy's crippled. He's not only crippled physically, he's probably crippled psychologically as well. He loses his family. He has to hide. Um, he can't play with others. He can't even uh, give his true identity away. So he's growing up in a very difficult situation, awkward place to be. Physically deformed, isolated because of deformity, 
living in fear, perhaps that someone might come and kill him. I'm sure the nurse said, Shh, you mustn't tell anyone who you are. If anything strange happens, if you see men that are looking for us, you must come and tell me. And he probably had to change his name. And uh, she cut him off from his family for his own well-being because uh, he would have been killed. I don't know how the boy felt about this. It was five when he happened. Self-rejection, self-hatred, I don't know, inadequacy, inferiority. Was he depressed as a little boy? Uh, living in fear all the time, it would take its toll, wouldn't it, on your life all the time. His name, interesting, it means this, from the mouth of the shameful thing. It's terrible, isn't it? It's like, hmm, okay. From the mouth of the shameful thing, as though his life was a shame, a dishonourable thing that he was living. He had lost his rightful inheritance. He grew up a broken man. When you think what was potentially his, the well, I mean, the wealth uh, in the nation of Israel then was just something else. David was the wealthiest king then. I mean, Saul followed him, but David, it was the most powerful reign of any king in Israel. And so it was building up to that through Saul as well. So he lost all of that, broken both physically and emotionally, materially and every way. It says there he ended up in a place called Lodabar. That's as bad as his name, apparently. Uh, it means barrenness. It means infertile and no pasture. I mean, so he had a terrible name and he lived in a terrible place. So the scripture does that, doesn't it? It wants to really make a point, and when it makes a point, it truly makes the point of everything that was bad. We learn from here, possibly, that rejection starts at a very early age. And then it develops as we grow up. This wound grows with us until it becomes quite a big thing. Years later, David, perhaps he's had a dream or a thought that God has spoken to him. God cares for us all, and he's caring about this little boy, but grown into a man now. And he said, David, I want you to take steps to, uh, to bless him, as it were, to prosper him because of your relationship with his father. You were, it says, they were knit together, he and his father. He meets then with King David. But the answer reveals everything, doesn't he, when David comes to him. Now, I would imagine that going to David, he might have thought, curtains, really. I mean, there's only one way this is going to end and it's not going to be very good for me because... But then he quickly realises that David welcomes him and he wants to bless him. But he says this, he says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now I thought to call yourself a dog would be bad enough. But is there anything less than a dead dog? Uh, these days, a dead dog would have just been taken out and thrown on the rubbish heap. That's what you do with a dead dog. So he didn't, he didn't say, I'm a dog. He said, I'm a dead dog. I'm, the only thing you can do with me is throw me out with the refuge. Why would he be like this? Well, it's the past hurts, isn't it? 
from the age of five, he was just hurting. Um, all of these things had never left him, never gone away. He grew up with them all the time. He could only then communicate negatively when he spoke. You can't help but feel sorry for this young man. Uh, but I'm going to stop your sorrow because as you read on about this young man, he's very treacherous to David in the end. Uh, maybe he never really got healed of those problems. Uh, he was blessed here, obviously, but he never really got freed. And of course, we know many saints in the Old Testament never got freed unless they really called on the Lord. And perhaps a lot of the pain that he had, and that caused him to be treacherous in the end towards David. Rejection. It stops us sitting at the king's table. Interesting little play on that, isn't it? See, he, was, he could have sat at the king's table. He didn't know that. But rejection stops us coming and enjoying life with the king. We keep our distance. Rejection affects the whole person. What do I mean by whole person? Well, we're spirit, soul, and body. I say it that way because primarily we are spirit. We normally say body, soul, and spirit, but really we should say spirit, soul, and body. It's the spirit that comes first. The spirit is the source of our life. The spirit is when he created man uh, with her body, he breathed into him, and that became his life. That was God's gift to man, the very spirit that was in him. And from the spirit, life flowed. The spirit was the source, or is the source of our life, in the same way we think of the source of a river, that the head of it, where it all starts. Out of our spirit flows our responses to life, how we handle things, who we are, how we deal with people. It is part of man and woman through which we encounter God. He speaks to our spirit. He seldom speaks to our ears. He speaks into the spirit of a man. He whispers in the spirit. And of course, as Christians, that is what we seek to develop, isn't it? People say, oh, God never says anything to me. Well, are you developing your spirit so you can hear God speak? Because that's where he's going to speak. That's where he's going to communicate. That's where we encounter the living God in our spirit. And it is by which they became aware and experienced God consciousness. Conscious of his presence all the time. See, as we develop our spirit and develop our ability to relate to God, we become God-conscious. He's there all the time. And we're going to be looking at this later in the year, about how to practice being in the presence of him so we can walk all day conscious of the presence of God in all that we're doing, in everything. The Bible is clear that this area of our being can be affected negatively. The spirit can be effective. It shouldn't. When we're born again, God comes and makes this part of us alive again to God so we can communicate and fellowship with God and relate to God and enjoy God and hear God in our spirit. 
This is what it says in Proverbs 18 and 14. A man's spirit, it says, sustains him in sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? So in our spirit, our spirit sustains us. It's the source of our life. It's our relationship with God. It's God ministering to us. But, but if it's crushed, if it's wounded, who can bear that? I would suggest to you that your spirit could be wounded by rejection. It would be deep. It would come in a childhood. It would be something that you've grown up with. It's something that has deeply, deeply affected you. And although God has now entered into your spirit, you need to be healed. You need not be sick in the spirit. It talks about being sick there in the spirit. Rejection will affect the person deeply, then even in their spirit, I think this is possibly the reason why people, they can't appreciate the love of God. Because we would appreciate the love of God in our spirit. It's there, we know that God loves us first. And that then flows out of our life. But if it's wounded, we struggle to know that God loves us. He does really love us. I mean, we think we've got to perform or do something or act in a proper way or make sure we repent enough times and all that. All of that stuff, it, we miss the mark that God loves us. He really, really loves us. He has chosen us. He has set his love upon us. He chooses to see us righteous in Christ. The truth is, if you kept on sinning, it wouldn't matter. But listen, if I say that, you say, no, that's wrong, Philip. Yes, it is wrong, because we've got to get a balance on he loves us, so we can do anything now because he loves us, and we wouldn't live in such a way that we would do things to offend him. But you could if you wanted to, but he would still love you. Somehow we think, I've got to keep my nose clean. I've got to walk right before God, otherwise he won't love me. That is a lie, a lie, and we must not buy into it or let people tell, tell us that or teach us that or bring us into condemnation. This love of God is wonderful, and he ministers it to our spirit. I am God's favourite. I don't know about you, he loves me more than he loves anybody else in the world. And whatever I do, we are never at odds with one another. Never. See, that's what we have to see the gospel is. It is really, really that. And when we see and know what it is and we know who God is, I don't want to do anything wrong. Not because I could fall out of favour with him, but I love him so much, I just don't want to do anything that would hurt or offend or cause him to go, ooh, ooh, anything like that. Just, but I could do. And his love would not change one little bit. We look then at the soul of a man. We looked at his spirit, his, his soul now. The soul of a man is that which makes him aware of things, self-conscious see we have a body and inside the body the spirit of a man is 
And it is the soul that connects the body to the spirit. This life source that's in us and the world around us is touched by the body and the soul interacts between the two. It plays a very important part. The body then houses the real person, which is your spirit. And in there is the soul. And the soul, we could say, is your personality. It is who you are. The soul consists of, we would say, the will of a person, his intellect, and his passion or his emotion. I like the word passion rather than emotion. The will is the area of decision-making, the area of choice, uh, the choice of how we behave. The intellect is the area of thought or reason or knowledge. It's, it's there in the soul. And the passion of a person is this area of feeling. We could say, in all of these areas, the areas of the soul, rejection can have an effect on people. The way the person behaves can be affected by this wound of rejection. The choices that they make, the decisions that they come to, it could all work because these pressures that come upon, especially the pressure of rejection, could lead to wrong decision-making. Let's take the case where you're told you're no good. You're no good. Your life will never amount to anything. You're useless. Why are you bothering to do that? Leave school quickly. Don't bother taking exams. You'll never be any good. You know that sort of negative, negative, negative stuff? And some kids grow up with that all the time. They can't do anything right. And it's awful attitude. Well, of course, in time, as you keep hearing this as a child, you believe it. You think, I'm no good. I'm stupid. I can't do anything. And sometimes these words are said to us in jest. But we have to be very careful because children are very sensitive. Um, children have spirits, you know. They don't grow up and then get a spirit. They're born with a spirit. And it's sensitive. And, and we have to be careful. Then your emotions, if you believe this to be true and you've taken it into your personality, you, you act in a certain way towards other people, like we've been speaking about. And like I said also, you end up rejecting yourself because you're told something. I remember when I used to go home and uh, I played sport as a youngster. And uh, I, my father was joking with me. I had a very kind, loving father without a shadow of a doubt, but he got this bit wrong and I don't think he'll mind me just sharing this little bit. If, if we won a game, he would say we were playing the blind school. And if we lost a game, he would say that we were duffers. So it didn't matter whether I won or lost. And I would get this comment like, you know, well, <laughs> I can't do that then, Dad. Well, of course, what you do to protect yourself, 
you don't tell him the score, do you? You don't tell him, you know, you're thinking, uh, if he wants, if he asks you, he asks you, you know, but I was glad if he didn't ask me because I knew what was coming. And, uh, but having said that, uh, my father was a wonderful, wonderful man and he cared dearly for me. But it was, it was a throwaway joke for my dad. He didn't, he didn't mean that, you know, because it obviously affected me. Otherwise, all these years later, I wouldn't be uh, recounting it to you. You know, and uh, yeah, so, and I remember growing up in a family, I had two brothers older than me that were right, very studious, and they were smart, educated, and they read a lot. Of course, all I ever wanted to do was go out and play. I never read anything, I didn't read books, I mean, it was like so boring. And of course, what would come across for my mum, maybe she too wanted to encourage me, you know. Uh, she would say I was a duffer or something, you know, or, you know, something like that. And uh, she wasn't nasty. I love my mum, and my mum was a very loving mum. But, but small things, you know what I mean? And you think, oh, it doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters to the effect that it affects you. You don't know to what effect, and you know, thank God, I, I think I grew up all right in the end, but uh, there we go. Um, the, the third area is, is the body. Some people are rejected by others, and it's cruel because of their body, um, all sorts of things. Imagine being called ugly by someone, you know, growing up. That's, that must be an awful thing because we just want affirmation and we want people to be affectionate to us and to love us. Now, no one is ugly, really. They're not. I mean, there are very good-looking people, but by and large, people are just people, aren't they? They're just, we're just you know, ordinary people. I mean, every now and then you find someone who's really striking. Um, but, you know, have been made fun of because, you know, you're too tall or you're too fat or you're too short or it doesn't matter, too something, too thin, you know, your nose is too long or your ears stick out and all this. And people, they make fun of it, make fun, they, you know, for all sorts of things. They could say, you're the wrong gender. I wanted a boy and you're a girl or, you know, I wanted a girl and you're a boy, all that sort of thing. It's not helpful. And of course, the wrong colour, you know, people grow up with prejudice all the time and they feel, they feel isolated, cut off, they feel they don't fit into society and of course, it's an awful thing. I want to look at identity now and image. They're closely related. God has called us as individuals, I love this, with a unique personality. There is not another person like you in the whole world. There never has been and there never will be. Do you think that's brilliant? I think that is so wonderful. It's like when God meets you, he knows you different from anyone else. He knows all about you and he, he's just got a picture of you. He knows you so perfectly and he can't confuse you with anyone else because he made you unique, an individual, unique person. And we're all different and all important to God. There isn't anyone more important in the kingdom than you. Now, they might think they're more important 
or you might see them as doing more important things. But in the sight of God, if someone's doing something great for God, it's because God has gifted them to do it and graced them to do it and caused them to do it. I, I think I've shared this maybe as another illustration. I have two brothers and two of us, uh, we were pastors. And uh, my uh, older brother, he had a church and uh, the congregation grew to about 1,500. Uh, any church that I pastored only ever grew to 150. Well, that made me feel really inadequate, uh, insecure, fearful, <laughs> wondering why. Well, then I realised, I'm unique. I'm Philip. He's John and he's unique. Whatever God gave him to do, he did. And what God gave me to do, I did. The most silly thing that we can ever do is compare one with another. How can you compare two unique, unique things? Uh, you can't, because what is the comparison? What are you comparing? You're unique, he's unique. How can, the only thing you can compare are identical things. So if you'd had two postage stamps, say penny blacks, I, know, yeah, I don't know much about uh, stamp collecting, but I know about a penny black. The, they're, they're worth a bit of money, I presume, uh, an old Victorian stamp. If one was in pristine condition, it would be worth a lot more than one that was all a bit tatty and worn. Why? Because they're identical things, you understand? They're not unique, that, that you can compare them and say, this is worth more than this one. But you can't do that with people. You can't compare me with anyone and I can't compare you with anyone because you are unique. See how God did that? That's so clever, isn't it? And we shouldn't compare ourselves with anyone else. We can look at someone and say, they're doing this job and I've got this job and I'm looking to them because they do it well and I want to do it well, but you mustn't compare yourself with them. You must see yourself as a unique person. And as unique people with the image of God, the purpose is we reflect God. We reflect him in who we are. So as I walk and live, and I allow God to rule and reign in my heart and life, I am reflecting God in a way that no one else can reflect God. Isn't that beautiful? So hopefully when you look at me, you can say, I can see a facet of God there. And I can only see it in you, Philip. It's, it's unique to you. We're special, you see. Special, unique people. We're not just here to communicate with God, but to reflect him in who we are. We're to act like God to the world, but it comes through our personality through who we are. You have a personality and God has entered into you. He dwells in your spirit, but he, he comes through your personality, through your mind, your will and your emotion. God comes through that. That's what he wants to do. But if it's bruised and damaged and dented, 
God has a lot of problem in coming through your personality. That's why we need to be healed and restored and made whole in our soul so the Spirit of God within us can flow through us, through our personality, our feelings, our, our passions, our, who we are. God can flow out of us. This thing, our personality, is, we could say that's my self-image, who I am. And God works through that image. If our self-image is unhealthy, there will be a conflict in the way we see ourselves and the way God sees us. See, he's inside of you, perfect in your spirit, and he's trying to get him work through you so people can see him but he can't get through because your passions are all bruised and your intellect is bruised and there's parts of you that are just not healed and restored and he's he's doing his best to to work through us and you say well god just heal me then and get on with it mm, no god doesn't do that sort of stuff he grows and works in us one day you will be whole and complete you will have the character of Jesus Christ and he will carry on doing it forever if it takes forever because that's God. He will not stop until the work is finished. Three things attack us, we know. It is the world, the flesh and the devil and they have an effect on us that can create this rejection within us. The world then, as we grow up as children, we respond to the things that are happening around us. A child is very open and teachable, and we need to be very careful with children always. The most important people to the child must be the parents, and what they create around the child must be vitally important to that child. That's how the child interprets what life is all about. So that's his world. His world is fed to him by his mum and dad, by his siblings, those around him. So a child's, a child's understanding of life is filtered through the words that he hears, the things that are said to him, the encouragement that he gets, the affirmation that he gets, that's his world. And it needs to be as, as precious as possible. When new converts come to the church, they need to be handled very carefully. Sometimes we're very cruel to new converts. We think, now nah, you're a Christian, get on with it. You know, you shouldn't do this, shouldn't do that, shouldn't do the other, shouldn't do the we we smash them up before they've been in there a week with expectations we need to nurture them so they grow and they get healed in all these areas i think every new convert should should receive a lot more care and 
talking to and encouragement and maybe parenting from mature Christians and receive all the counselling and prayer and hear the things they need to hear so they can grow in the things of God. Look then into your childhood. Look at what you saw. What was mirrored to you about the world? Maybe you've forgotten what your childhood was. Long time ago now for lots of people. But what were people saying to you? You know, what was being fed to you? What were you understanding about things? Mm. The second area is the flesh. Um, growing up, we pick up many ideas. As it, uh, we pick up many nonsense from the world, really. Lots of rubbish. The way we feel, our senses, our nerves, our capacity to respond. It's affected we're affected by, by the things we experience in our body. I remember as a child getting into fights. Some you win and you feel good about it. And then some you lose and you feel awful about that. It's the body, you see, that takes the blows. It's, it's these things that affect us in our physical being as well, that have an effect on us. And finally, uh, our battle is with the devil, the father of lies, the accuser, the one who comes to condemn and bring guilt and to, uh, to accuse us. Why did I hear what my father said to me when he must have said a million other good things? and done a million other good things. I could recite many, many of them. But why did I hear that? Because the devil wanted me to hear that. He actually applied a megaphone to my dad when he said it, you see. And, and the devil is, is good at doing stuff like that so often. He will do whatever he can to stop us believing that God actually loves us and accepts us. One of the things that we need in addition to love is that of recognition. I want to be recognised. I want people to notice me. I want people to see that I count, that I do make it, I'm important. I just, I, I want to be recognised. In coming to Christ, you see, we're recognised. You might not be recognised by the world or acclaimed like the world wants to be acclaimed. That's what we see in the press every day, don't we? And on television, these people want to be acclaimed. They want to be recognised. They want to be seen. They want to be appreciated and loved by the people all the time. Of course, the press do a terrible thing. They build people up so they can smash them down. It appears that way anyway. Or people don't stay up there very long and they come crashing down. As a young man, all I ever wanted to do, I wanted to play rugby for Wales. Can you believe it? What a funny thing to want to do. But that was my passion, you see. I wanted to do that. Of course, I never even got close to it. Okay. But I've got something now that's even better. 
You see, if I, if I played till I was 30, I would have been washed out by then, wouldn't I? It would have been no more rugby for me. But this relationship with Jesus Christ, it gets better and better and better. And I don't have to run around and get not nine bells knocked out of me to be someone special. I simply have to walk with God and he recognises me and he sees me for who I am. I am so important to him. I'm recognised in the kingdom of God. Mm. See, if we're rejected and we don't realise we're recognised, we do things so people will recognise us. Mm. It's not healthy. It's not only children that misbehave to gain attention. Adults do too, because they, they crave recognition, you see want to be seen in Jesus. We have peace with God and peace with ourselves. Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with yourself? Or are you rejecting yourself? God sent Jesus to, to restore fallen man and woman to the very nature of God to reflect God's image. Your rejection can get to the very root of our identity and affect us deeply that we cannot live as we want to live. We want to live properly before God, yet it affects us. We feel worthless or useless, as I've said before. It says in Proverbs 23 and 7, as a man thinks, so he is. As a man thinks, so he is. To live according to God's word, it says you only need to do one thing, that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and to love your neighbour as you love yourself. You see, it's not wrong to love yourself. It's not, but it is wrong to reject yourself. So love yourself, not thinking you're the most important thing in the world, but not to reject yourself. And when you love yourself and not reject yourself, you can love your neighbour and you can love God. There we go. That brings us to a close. A good start. Okay. God bless you all. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week for our second lesson in the rejection module. Also, if you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by heading over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. Also, you can follow us on social media at Arise Ministry. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.